Thank you, Pastor Jim. Looking forward to looking at Ecclesiastes 8 this evening with you all. Uh, if you've been in Sunday school class, you probably know you should get your pens ready and your fingers nimble right now, so we'll try to carry that through this evening. Please open your Bibles with me to Ezekiel 48 this evening. And you did hear me right, Ezekiel 48. As you're turning there, I want to read the opening verse of Ecclesiastes 8. Ecclesiastes 8 starts off, Who is like the wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a matter? Who is like a wise man? When we think about that, who is wise? Is there someone in your life that's you would consider wise? What do we consider wisdom? Is there someone that stands out in your mind, maybe a parent, a friend, a co-worker, someone else, a teacher, a famous inventor, mathematician maybe? Who is wise? If we add the rest of the verse to it, who knows the interpretation of a matter? Does that change that person in your mind? Do we consider wisdom and the interpretation of a matter different? Let's consider scripture now. If we open the pages of scripture and ask the question, who is wise in the Bible? And knew, who knew how to interpret a matter? And don't go to Solomon, of course, we're talking through Ecclesiastes, but who else in the Bible was wise? Well, if we look before Ecclesiastes, chronologically speaking, we, we might consider Joseph was wise. Joseph was wise. In Genesis 41, 39, we read this. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one so discerning and wise as you are. Joseph was wise. If we look after Ecclesiastes and we continue to flip through pages in our Bible, we see that Daniel's wise. So if you're in, Ecclesi or in Ezekiel 48, turn a couple pages over. Now that you know why you're in Ezekiel 48, turn to Daniel chapter 1. Let's read about Daniel. Daniel in chapter 1, verse 17, we read this about Daniel. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them... All, not one, was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about them, which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. So Daniel and his friends were wise. They were considered wise. They were upheld for their wisdom. There might be some other less familiar names if you think about who is wise in the Bible. Do you remember the individual Ahithophel by chance? Ahithophel? You may not, but if you were to dive into 2 Samuel in chapter 16, verse 23, we read this. The advice of Ahithophel, which he gave in those days, was as if one inquired of the word of God. So was all the advice of Ahithophel regarded by both David and Absalom. His advice was that of the word of God. That's, that's pretty strong language for someone. So wisdom. But of course we know that the Solomon was wise, right? So as we talk about wisdom and we ask the question, who is wise, who was wise, let's turn back to 1 Kings chapter 3 real quick. And let's just keep it fresh in our minds about the wisdom of an individual. 1 Kings chapter 3, if you would turn there, We'll read a few verses. 
Beginning in verse 5, 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5. And Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night, and God said, Ask what you wish to me to give you. Then Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David, my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart towards you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is to this day. Now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant, which is in your midst of your people, which you have chosen, a great people which cannot be numbered or counted for multitude. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? It was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that Solomon had asked for this thing. God said to him, Because you have asked this thing and have not asked for yourself long life, nor have asked riches for yourself, nor have you asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself discernment to understand justice. Behold, I have done according to your words. Behold, I have given you a wise and discerning heart so that there has been no one like you before you, nor shall one like you arise after you. Wow. Very clearly the wisest, most discerning ever. If we were to continue reading, and we won't take the time to read verses 16 through 27, but we're familiar with the story. Solomon is to judge a case between two mothers, one whose baby was just killed, the other whose baby was alive but being claimed by the other. And he renders a judgment. And look at verse 28. What is the result of that? When all Israel heard of the judgment with the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. It was seen. The wisdom was in him. And then over to 1 Kings 4, verses 29 and 31, since you're there. We read, Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind, like the sand that is on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men. And it continues to list a long list of them. So we ask the question, who is wise? The Bible tells us Solomon was wise. He was the wisest of all men. There was no one like him before, and there was none like him after. So let's turn back to Ecclesiastes 8. Now that we've answered a little bit of the question, we want to dive into the detail. Who is like the wise man, and who knows the interpretation of a matter? We're in Ecclesiastes 8. We've been progressing, of course, through the book of Ecclesiastes. We've seen futility along the way. Most recently in the section, Futility and the Prosperity of Riches of chapter 6, we've seen chapter 7 as it bombards us with Proverbs upholding wisdom that we heard last week. We still notice limitations. Consider the character. There's been advice to pursue wisdom and righteousness. And then chapter 7 ends with verses, verses such as this in verse 23 of chapter 7. I tested all this with wisdom and I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. Verse 28a, I have found one man among a thousand. And verse 29, behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. So let's look into chapter 8 this evening. As we do, we'll break it into three main points as we look at this chapter. Point number one, note that wisdom with human government benefits man. 
Wisdom with human government benefits man. We want to watch as the preacher will make a statement and then develop it in the following verses. Look at verse 1. Who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? A man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. We want to see with this wisdom that benefits man as it relates to human government, we want to note first that wisdom creates radiance in verse 1. Wisdom creates radiance. You may ask, what kind of wisdom? Well, if we consider wisdom here, it says, who is like the wise man and who knows the interpretation of a matter? So we're talking about the interpretation of a matter, the interpretation of a thing. This word interpretation, interestingly enough, is used only here in Ecclesiastes and in one other book that we were just in, and that's Daniel. And it can refer in Daniel to the interpretation of a dream. We know that Daniel interpreted many dreams, and he was told that, and he was able to interpret or tell about the matter. While the preacher here is referring to wisdom, it's the specific type. It's the interpretation of a matter. It's discernment, if we were to narrow it down. We just read in 1 Kings 3, 28, when all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had handed down, they feared the king, for they saw that wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. Solomon, in that case, interpreted a matter. He stood out. He stood out. So that's the kind of wisdom that we're talking about. So if point number one is wisdom creates radiance, we've defined wisdom. What about radiance? What is this radiance? We read that a man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. Well, that language can be difficult to understand. Let's try to break it down. If wisdom creates radiance, we want to see that a wise man stands out. A wise man stands out. In the ESV, the, the verse reads, a wise man... A, wise, a man's wisdom makes his face shine. Think about that face shine terminology. We've heard that before. It may be familiar. If we think about the Old Testament, we may, our minds may wander back to Moses, for example. What happened when he descended from Mount Sinai after talking with God? His face shone. It illuminated. If we look to the New Testament, Stephen may come to mind. When he was filled with the Holy Spirit before he began speaking, his face shone like an angel. So we see that a wise man stands out when his face is illuminated. We see figurative examples of a shining face in scripture as well. In number 625, Aaron's benediction, it said, the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. Psalm 4, 6 attributes a radiance of the Lord. Many are saying, who will show us any good? Lift up the light of your countenance upon us, O Lord. Psalm 6, uh, Proverbs 16, 15 relates it to humanity. In the light of a king's face, his life and his favor is like a cloud with spring rain. So we can gather that the wise man stands out. His face shines. He is favored and favorable, and often he is blessed by God. So we see this wise man stands out. But secondly, when we consider this radiance, we see that a wise man extends compassion. Look at the verse again. A wise, man, a wise a man's wisdom illumines him and causes his stern face to beam. In the ESV, we read the hardness of his face is changed. This can be interpreted as the application of that. It's the application of grace and mercy and compassion. This is how he handles the wisdom. His face illumines, he stands out, and he handles it with grace and compassion, with mercy. It's the opposite of what we find throughout Scripture. Compared to Proverbs 21, 29, a wicked man displays a bold face, but as for the upright, he makes his way sure. So instead of having a bold or a stern face, we see that wisdom, when it's applied properly, has a face 
that changes from that. It softens it. James also helps us to understand true wisdom and how it's evidenced. In James 3.17, he writes, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. So we see that a wise man stands out, his face beams, but that beaming, that shining face is also soft, it's compassionate. By context and contrast, we see a wise man radiating out of both his understanding and his actions. He will appear, as it were, one among a thousand, if we reference the terminology used in verse 28, which we read, which I am still seeking but have not found. I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among these Verse 29, behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought many devices. So we see that when we question or when we investigate wisdom, we see that wisdom creates radiance. It creates radiance. It makes a wise man stand out, and it also extends his compassion. So we'll continue to consider this wisdom as it relates to human government and his benefits not only does wisdom create radiance, but secondly, we see that wisdom, or excuse me, discernment removes burdens. Discernment removes burdens. Look at verse 2 of chapter 8. It says, I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble. For a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight. Though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. So we see that discernment removes burdens. The preacher now turns from a question and a statement on wisdom to a study on wisdom as it applies to government, to human government. He applies it to the role of one under authority. As you saw from our reading, to one in the king's presence. So let's look at what he says. Discernment removes burdens, and we can see several characteristics of that. We can see, first off, a proper respect for government, a proper respect for government. We'd be amiss if we wouldn't talk and glean knowledge and wisdom from the writer of Ecclesiastes, one who obviously shows wisdom. So let's see what we can learn from it. A proper respect for government is allegiance. In verse 2, the second half, he says, because of the oath before God, the Israelites took an oath under the king, and they'd be familiar with this type of language. In 1 Chronicles 29, 24, we read, All the officials, the mighty men, and also the sons of King David pledged allegiance to King Solomon. But we do that as well, right? We pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. We've all pledged that. We've all pledged our allegiance to government as well. So, of course, that's a proper respect for government. We've made an oath before God, just as the Israelites did, allegiance to our country and to the authority that God's placed over us. So we see that a proper respect for government, one of allegiance, is, of course, fundamental to our understanding. And, of course, we know that our allegiance is pledged because God has ordained government in his place here on earth under the sun. So we owe that allegiance. It's a proper response or a proper respect. So not only can we see a proper respect, but we can also see a proper response to government in the continuing verses. The proper response to government is discerning obedience, discerning obedience. 
Warren Wearsby provides some D words to provide a starting block, and we'll consider the, the preacher's advice of a proper and wise response to government. Look back at verse 2. The preacher says, I say, keep the command of the king because of the oath before God. This is not only wise advice, but from the rest of the Bible, we know that it's, of course, biblical advice as well. It's not only advice for the world under the sun, but we read in 1 Peter 2, verse 13, we have similar instructions. 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 13, Peter writes, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as in one in authority, or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves to God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. So when we consider our proper response to government, we should not disobey authority. We do not disobey authority. We keep the command of the king. Secondly, note that we should not or do not desert authority. Do not desert authority. A proper response to government requires obedience to authority, and it also requires that we do not desert authority. Look at verse 3 of Ecclesiastes 8. It says, do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. There should not be haste in leaving the king or the king's presence. This may be a very easy response or a natural response when things get tough, but the advice is there. Do not desert authority. Do not leave the presence of the king. Wisdom does not apply a I'm taking my toys and going home mindset, does it? Dwayne Garrett, on his work on Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs, insightfully notes that a hasty or untimely departure could result in a loss of opportunity to influence the king. If we quickly depart from the king, we might lose future opportunity. So the advice is do not desert authority in the beginning of verse 3. So do not disobey authority. Do not desert authority. And the thirdly, do not defy authority. Do not defy authority. Look back at verse 2, or verse 3. Do not be in a hurry to leave him. Do not join in an evil matter, for he will do whatever he pleases. Since the word of the king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? Defying authority could be something as joining a rebellion against, or disagreeing in behavior, or expressing disagreement. The king will punish such behavior, we're reminded. Proverbs 14.35 says similar, The king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely, but his anger is toward him who acts shamefully. Proverbs 24, verses 21 22, My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not associate those who are given to change, for their calamity will rise suddenly. And who knows the ruin that will come from both of them. So do not defy authority. Fourthly, advice, do not demand of authority. Do not demand of authority. It says in verse 4, since the word of a king is authoritative, who will say to him, what are you doing? It's good advice. Demanding of authority could be disrupting. It could be questioning in an inappropriate manner. It could be arguing or demanding an explanation for an action or a decision. But the advice is do not demand of authority. So we have a proper response to government, a discerning obedience. But note thirdly, a proper result from government as well 
proper result from government we see in verse 5, and that is no trouble. Look at verse 5 again. He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. Proverbs echoes this statement multiple times. Proverbs 14.35, again, a king's favor is toward a servant who acts wisely. Proverbs 16.14, the fury of a king is like messengers of death, but a wise man will appease it. Proverbs 19, verse 12, the king's wrath is like the roaring of a lion, but his favor is like dew on the grass. In Proverbs 20, verse 2, the terror of a king is like a growling of a lion. He He who provokes him to anger forfeits his own life. So if we respond properly to government, we see that there's, there's no trouble. Not only does the writer of Ecclesiastes promise this and advise this out of wisdom, but Paul will share the same promise as Romans 13. Romans 13.3, Paul writes, For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. So if we submit to authority over us, if we obey, if we do not defy, if we don't desert, if we don't demand of, praise will replace problems, mostly. So proper result from government is no trouble. Note, fourthly, a proper restraint with government. A proper restraint with government, and that's discernment. Discernment. Look back to verse 5. He who keeps a royal command experiences no trouble And then the second half, for a wise heart knows the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. There's a proper time and procedure for every matter, and a wise heart will be able to discern that. A wise heart knows the interpretation and the time. Derek Kidner will state it this way, quote, It is within that framework that he also uses his wits as a wise man should, to size up a perilous situation and judge the timing of his actions, end quote. Of course, the, the do-nots above are time-appropriate. We all know that they are to be the default of do-not-do-these things, but there are times that we need to discerningly do something different. When God-ordained authority conflicts with God's own authority, let's consider the response we're to have. Consider Daniel, one we've already established was full of wisdom, If we were to turn back to Daniel 1 and verse 8, we read this, But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he refused to eat the meat before him. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't. It says he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. He came up with a proposition his discernment and his wisdom, he developed a proposition. In verses 12 and 13, we read, Please test your servants for ten days and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. It's interesting, he applied wisdom. He devised a gentle and discerned plan. He asked permission, and he was delivered. But did you notice the end of verse thing, uh, verse 13? It says, and deal with your servants according to what you see. He was open to submitting to the results of the test. So even though he asked permission and he proposed this plan, he was open still to submission. Back in Ecclesiastes, it's important to note the end of verse 6. 
It's as though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. His trouble is heavy upon him. Following a discerning wisdom and submission may be troubling, or hard, or even difficult at times. It may even cause suffering, and that may be involved, but we know that we can and will suffer through it, and we will suffer well. And in the coming weeks, I think we'll hear more about that as well, how to suffer well through suffering that may come. So as life under the sun relates to government and authority, we find wisdom easing life overall, removing many burdens that could beset us. So we're challenged to seek, to pray for, and to be thankful for wisdom from above because wisdom from above helps in discernment to remove burdens. Wisdom with human government benefits man in several areas. We, we talked about its wisdom creates radiance, discernment removes burdens, and thirdly, understanding remains limited. Look at verse 7 of chapter 8. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell him when it will happen? No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death, and there is no discharge in the time of war, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. Here we see the limitations of wisdom put forth. Of course, there's benefits. A wise man can know the interpretation of a matter. He can know the proper response and when to respond to that matter through discernment. But as we see in verses 7 through 9, there's limitations to those results under the sun. This is not a new limitation. We've heard these before. In verse 7, we note that the future is unknown. If no one knows what will happen, who can tell when it will happen? If future events are unknown and no one knows what will happen, of course no one knows when it will happen either. So the future timing is unknown. It's a natural result. So not only can man tell, not tell what will happen, he can't tell when it will happen. So the future is unknown. We see in verse 8 that nature is untamable. No man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind. Whether this is speaking of wind or the spirit is a little bit unclear, but no man can restrain it. It's untamable. We see also in verse 8, no man has authority to restrain the wind with the wind or authority over the day of death. Death is unavoidable. Nature is untamable. Death is unavoidable. Job, speaking of man, recognizes the same in Job 14.5. Since his days are determined and the number of his months is with you and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Of course, the writer of Hebrews reminds us in chapter 9, verse 27, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this come judgment. Death is unavoidable. We can't avoid it. The future is unknown. Death, uh, nature is untamable. Death is unavoidable. And we see if we continue reading, there is no discharge in the time of war. Discharge is unattainable. Discharge is unattainable. Duty cannot be relieved in the time of war. It's a great illustration. Authority will presume at times even to hurt. Discharge is unattainable. Back at the end of verse 8, and evil will not deliver those who practice it. Evil is undeliverable. Evil will not ultimately deliver one. He can continue in it, but it won't deliver. Even if it's compounded evil over evil for a lifetime, it won't deliver an evil person from death or from the results. We'll see later that wicked may have a delayed judgment, but that judgment will still come. So evil is undeliverable. Back to verse 9. 
All this I have seen and applied my mind to every deed that has been done under the sun, wherein a man has exercised authority over another man to his hurt. Finally, man is unbelievable. Man is unbelievable. The preachers considered all of the circumstances of how wisdom and authority can be applied, and he's come to the conclusion that he's already concluded in other areas too, but he concludes that man will use authority for his own benefit to the hurt of another. Man and mankind will display his fallenness each and every time. We've noted this back in chapter 7. If you look at verse 20, Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. Also do not take seriously all the words which are spoken, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For you also have realized that you likewise have many times cursed others. There's not a single man that's righteous. Not a single man has not done something to another to his own hurt. So man is, is unbelievable. We see his fallenness in these several verses, but if we don't fully understand and we don't have time, but take a look at Romans 3, and we'll see, as we heard this morning, that this is a gentle summary of, of man's depravity, but if you want the full force, Romans 3 will give it to you. Man from head to toe is, toe is depraved. He's sinful. He's completely sinful. So, of course, man is unbelievable. Despite all the uncertainty under the sun, the preacher notes that under the sun, there is uncertainty. Wisdom is limited. Understanding remains limited. He said it before in Ecclesiastes 3.11, he's made everything appropriate for its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. It's so that man will not find out the work which God has done before from the beginning even to the end. So wisdom with human government benefits man. It, wisdom creates radiance. Discernment removes burdens and understanding remains limited. In the next section, we want to see that wisdom with heavenly government bewilders man. It bewilders man. It confuses him. Look at verse 10. So then, I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they have soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. This too is futility. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. There's futility which is done on the earth, that is, there are the righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this, too, is futility. The preacher's just shown the benefits of wisdom as they relate in context to human government or authority here under the sun. But now he'll contrast that as he applies wisdom to heavenly government or authority that transcends all life and ultimately executes justice. Back in verse 10, we read, So then I have seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out of the holy place, and they are soon forgotten in the city where they did thus. The ESV will translate that last phrase a little differently. It says, They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. So when we look at wisdom as it relates to heavenly government, bewildering man or confusing man, we note first that observation of temporal inequality, 
there's an observation of temporal inequality. We see this in verses 10 through 12 in the beginning. And we see this inequality, injustice in three different areas. First off, we note that the wicked's lives are praised. The wicked's lives are praised. We just read that with the ESV translation. They used to go in and out of the holy place, and they were praised in the city that they had done such things. Whether we interpret verse 10, as the NASB does, with forgotten or with the ESV being praised, we notice in either case, the wicked are buried. You may say, why are we talking about them being buried? But we saw earlier in chapter 6 that being buried is a respectable action. Chapter 6, verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, however many they may be, but his soul is not satisfied with good things and he does not even have a proper burial, then I say, better the miscarriage than he. So the fact that the individual, the wicked, are even buried shows that they're respected. They went in and out of the holy place. This was their behavior. It was clearly tolerated. They weren't banished. Derek Kidner notes, quote, there are few things more obnoxious than the sight of the wicked men flourishing and complacent. Yet wickedness respected and given the blessing of religion is even more sickening, end quote. So the wicked's deeds are praised. The wicked's, excuse me, the wicked lives are praised. In verse 11, we see that the wicked's deeds are praised. The wicked's deeds are, are not punished, excuse me. The wicked's deeds are not punished. Look again at verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the Son of Men among them are given fully to do evil. Fallen man will take full advantage of a delayed punishment, won't he? We've already noted how government and authority is God-ordained for the purpose of punishment and evil to curb rampant wickedness. But when that government is also infiltrated with evil, we're left with futility. Ecclesiastes 3.16, Furthermore, I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness, and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness. How often do we see fear actually curbing in action? One may choose not to steal, for example, why? Solely because they don't want to be caught. They don't want to be penalized. I know a retired judge who was a judge for many years in the city, not too far from here. He was very predictable. If you decided to steal a necklace from a local jeweler or your dinner ingredients from the local mire or a candy bar from the Dollar General down the road, you got 90 days in jail. That's it. Every time. What do you think the retail fraud rate was in that city? It's pretty low. When that judge retired, a new judge took the bench and did not follow that same thing. What happened? What do you think? Crime rate went up. Retail fraud increased. The penalty was not there. The same was for graffiti. If you graffitied something, you went to jail. Every time. There was a penalty. And man understood that. And that penalty curbed the crime. It's interesting that sometimes God's long-suffering and patience can be misconstrued as his approval as well. In 2 Peter 3, 9, we read, The Lord is not slow about his promise, speaking of judgment, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So the wicked's deeds are not punished here on earth with our judicial system sometimes, but also in heaven. 
And I don't know about you, but I can say that I'm thankful that there's a delay in punishment by God. I'm very thankful that there's a delay offering time for repentance. I think most of us would reflect that sentiment. But it's futility when wisdom looks and notes that the wicked's deeds are not punished. The wicked's lives are praised in verse 10. The wicked's deeds are not punished in verse 11. And in verse 12, we see the wicked's days are prolonged. The wicked's days are prolonged. Although the sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know that there, it will be well for those who fear God and fear him openly. The specific number is probably not important, but the fact is that his days after sin after sin after sin are elongated. As we've gone through this, did you notice the upward progressive nature of this inequality? People's praise, government's delayed justice, unpredictability of a wicked man's lifespan. It goes from men to men, to men to the authority over them, to men now to God. It's confusing, it's futile. We realize that this inequity observed is not new to the book or even to the Bible. We see it throughout the pages of Scripture. We find Habakkuk complaining about such inequity in Habakkuk 1, verses 3 through 4. Why do you make me see this iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore, the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, justice comes out perverted. The Jews in Malachi exclaimed it in Malachi 3.15. So now we call the arrogant blessed. Not only are the doers of wickedness built up, but they, are also test, they also test God and escape. We see many people today observe this inequity as well. Consider the question that we often hear. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good people have to suffer through things? The world under the sun realizes this inequity. Of course, we know how to address it by stating that there are truly none good. But that doesn't change the fact that that's the appearance. The good suffer and the wicked do not. We see this futility stated in the New Testament as well in Romans 8. The same word is used for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. The futility that Paul's using is, states the same. Here under the sun there's futility. There's meaningless the doctrine of, of retribution is upheld, but it's not consistent, and that causes confusion among men. But we know that there's a day coming that we'll be able to discern the wicked from the righteous. Warren Wearsby reminds us that there is still hope in the future. He says, quote, Until Jesus Christ sets up his righteous kingdom, there will always be injustices in our world. It is one of the vanities of life, and we must accept it without becoming pessimistic or cynical. End quote. So there's an observation of temporal inequity in the wicked's lives being praised and their deeds being not punished and their days being prolonged. And that's one of the confusions that bewilders us with heavenly government. So not only is there an observation of temporal inequity, there's a declaration that we see of eternal justice, a declaration of eternal justice. In verse 12, the second half, the writer says, Still I know that it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly but it will not be well for the evil man and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. 
The preacher here breaks from his usual character of observation. He's been looking at things and saying, I've observed or I've seen, but here he changes it. He says, I know. I know. He knows it as well with those who fear God. It's not purely based on observation, but now he's bridging into what he knows. He's bridging into faith, conviction. In chapter 3, verse 17, he says, I said to myself, God will judge both the righteous man and the wicked man. For a time for every matter and for every deed is there. Proverbs 9.10, of course, echoes that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So fearing the Lord is beneficial. The author here declares it. It's interesting to note the transition from verse 12 to 13. In verse 12, although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, I still know that it will be well for those who openly fear, or who fear God, who fear him openly. But in verse 13, but it will not be well, the evil man. So he may lengthen his life, but in the end it will not be well. It's known. There may be an opportunity to lengthen his life here, but there is a judgment coming. So there's a declaration of eternal justice. Thirdly, in verse 14, there's a restatement of temporal futility. A restatement of temporal futility. There's futility which is done on earth, that is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say this too is futility. Derek Tidwell, in his work on Ecclesiastes, summarizes the verse in this way, quote, It is bad enough when human beings don't apply justice where they could. But what is worse, life itself doesn't seem to help. It always seems biased in the wrong direction. Wicked people prosper and live healthily, and righteous people seem burdened and suffer. It's also unfair. The parcels of retribution and reward have had their labels switched and have been delivered to the wrong addresses. Fortunes and misfortunes have been reversed, and life has conspired to make it so." End quote. A wise man seeks to understand life under the sun. He's confused by the swap of retribution and reward. He cannot understand it. So in verse 15, we find a recommendation of satisfying enjoyment. A recommendation of satisfying enjoyment. So I commend pleasure. For there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat, drink, and be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. The preacher, concluding again in futility, relates to justice. He revisits a conclusion here that he's drawn from before throughout the pages in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and chapter 4. It's important to note the tone, though, that which this conclusion is given. It's not a tone of arrogance. Let's eat, drink, and be merry. We see that in Luke 12, verses 19 and 20. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have... You have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now you will own what you have, and now who will own what you have prepared? It's not that type of language, it's not that type of recommendation. It's not an arrogant recommendation, it's a grateful one. It's a grateful one. It parallels what we read in Psalm 118, 24. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. How often do we find a gloomy Christian? How often are we the gloomy Christian? The first question in the shorter catechism is this. What is the chief end of man? 
the answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We're encouraged, we're recommended to enjoy life, the simple pleasures. Paul reminds us of this as well in 1 Timothy as he's amidst counsel for the rich. He says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, verses 16, uh, 17 through 18, Instruct those are rich, who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. We can enjoy the things that God's given us. We've heard it before from the preacher, and he, he says it again, so I commend pleasure. I appreciate Walter Kaiser's commentary on this. He summarizes, quote, God really intended that man should come to a proper enjoyment of the good material gifts placed in this world by him, and that the gifts should be a source of constant satisfaction when the things and the users are properly related to the giver himself, unquote. With grateful hearts, we should recognize and do recognize the little things, the subtle pleasures God's given us for our enjoyment. For example, did you enjoy your lunch today? Are you enjoying your dinner? Are you looking forward to your dinner, I should say? Are you enjoying the book that you're reading, perhaps? Are we recognizing these things? Did you purchase a new buck knife recently, perhaps, that you're enjoying? Or enjoy the Dunkin' Donuts coffee this afternoon as well? So we can find enjoyment in this world, in the simple things, in the midst of an unmanageable and consuming and confusing life under the sun. The recommendation is to enjoy and be joyful. So wisdom with human government benefits man. Wisdom with heavenly government bewilders man, can leave him confused. And thirdly and finally, wisdom with a sovereign God baffles man. It baffles man. It leaves him utterly confused. Man's been given amazing capabilities, wisdom for discernment, investigation, the opportunity to develop things in science, to create, to invent. Yet we find that man cannot understand God's ways. Look at verses 16 and 17. When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to see the task which has been done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, and I saw every work of God, I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek, seek laboriously, he will not discover. And though the wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. Note first, the ways of God are incomprehensible. The ways of God are incomprehensible. The preacher comes so firmly to this conclusion at the end of this chapter that he has to state it three times. He says, after striving, man cannot know the work of God. After seeking laboriously, he will not discover. And though he claims to know, he cannot discover either. We should not be surprised, and this should not be a unique conclusion. The preacher's already come to the conclusion before. In chapter 3, verse 11, he has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. In the book of Job, Zophar inquires of Job in Job 11, verse 7, Can you discover the depths of God? Can you discover the limits of the Almighty? The answer in verse 8, They are as high as the heavens. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? 
God answers the question for us in Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And of course, Paul breaks out in the familiar passage in Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. In the secular world, historian William Durant surveyed human history with his work, The Story of Civilization, a multi-volume work, and he came to the conclusion that, quote, our knowledge is a receding mirage in an expanding desert of ignorance, end quote. It's interesting that God has ordained both the desire for us to know and to understand, but also the limitations as well. He's given us both. We want to understand, but we simply cannot. His ways are incomprehensible. Derek Kidner observes and helps us with handling this incomprehensibility. He says, quote, The enjoyment of simple pleasures only makes it possible for us to shelve the big questions. It doesn't enable us to settle them. End quote. Walter Kaiser will also illustrate our inability in this way. He says, quote, Human insight, understanding, and reason, like water, cannot rise higher than their source or own level. Therefore, to the degree that God reveals his plan to believers, or that to that degree only, they are able to apprehend that much of the plan of God. Yet still there is mystery left. Only God knows entirely. We mortals know only in part. End quote. And that brings us to our second point. Not only are the ways of God incomprehensible, but we can't leave this chapter without realizing from the rest of the pages of Scripture that the revelation of God is comprehensible. God's ways are incomprehensible, but the revelation of God is comprehensible. Deuteronomy 29, 29 reminds us of this. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Thanks to God, we do have revelation. It's all around us. We have special revelation everywhere around us, or excuse me, general revelation all around us, and we have special revelation in your hands right now. God's provided revelation to us. And when we think about that revelation, it's interesting that we recall, or we need to recall what the Westminster Confession says about the Holy Scriptures. In paragraph 7, it says, Not all things in Scripture are equally plain in themselves or equally clear to all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly stated and explained in one place or another in Scripture that not only the educated but also the uneducated may gain a sufficient understanding of them by a proper use of the ordinary means. We should be thankful that we can comprehend the revelation that we have, the special revelation before us in particular. I appreciate the, the illustration that Alistair Begg uses. He says when we embark to put together a jigsaw puzzle, we often go to the edges first instead of endeavoring to piece the middle together. If we apply that to our faith, the Bible clearly gives us the parameters of our grace that we can find and understand. And as we dive more and more into the middle, it may come, but it also may baffle us. Because we can understand what God's given us, but we cannot understand his ways. 
they're incomprehensible. So we see that wisdom with human government benefits man. Wisdom with heavenly government bewilders man. And wisdom of a sovereign God baffles man. Who is like the wise man? And who knows the interpretation of a matter? One may be wise, he may be one of a thousand. One may be able to interpret a matter and bring benefit to his life. But if that one strives day and night and even claims to know, he does not know or understand the ways of God. We have to recognize that God's ways are incomprehensible. But thankfully, the simple pleasures have been provided that we can shelve the incomprehensible big questions and enjoy the pleasures that we've been given. 1 Corinthians 2.16, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Romans 11.36, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Thankfully, God knows us. He's planned us. He's planned our salvation, as we heard this morning. He guides us. And he will, if we are in him, one day glorify us, as we talked about even earlier this morning. So we rest in that. And until we get to that final consummation of our salvation, we take joy in the simple pleasures that God's given us, those that fill our everyday life. So as we leave this evening, I challenge you, look for those simple pleasures. And while we may be baffled, we may be utterly confused at times, take joy and enjoyment in the simple things that God's given us as a result of our toil here under the sun. As we close this evening, stand with me, if you will. We'll close in prayer and then be dismissed. Father, we thank you for wisdom. We thank you for the wisdom that's contained in the word that you've provided for us. We thank you for the reminder of it. Lord, well, it benefits us here under the sun, Lord. It it still cannot, as we rely on this earthly wisdom, fully satisfy all of our questions, Lord. You've given us inquisitive minds, and we thank you for that. You've given us creativity, and we thank you for that, Lord. But help us to be satisfied with the simple pleasures. Let us follow the recommendation of the preacher here. And Father, we, we do look forward to one day, if we are truly in you, being glorified, having the the cloudiness of sin in our mind removed, Lord, we look forward to that day when our understanding will be vast. Lord, we may not be to the extent of course of you because you are God. But Lord, you will clear up so many of the questions and we look forward to that day. We ask your blessing on this evening and the children's ministries that are closing up right now as well, Lord. Continue to work in the lives of the kids and the workers there. Be with us this evening as we depart. Keep us safe, Lord, and help us this week to be joyful Christians as we relish in the things that you've blessed us with. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.